Oh yeah, what's up everybody? Welcome, welcome to the Artist of Data Science Happy Hour. It is Friday, July 30th. Man, can't believe it. I feel like I'm always surprised at how fast the year progresses, um, but today especially. So uh, hopefully you guys got a chance to tune into the episode that was released early today with the legendary Lillian Pearson. Lillian is awesome. She's um She's become a mentor of mine over the last few months. We've been in contact regularly and it has been great to sit down and chat with her hopefully you guys enjoyed that episode don't forget to catch up on the backlog if you haven't already i know there's a lot of episodes out there that you might have missed that you would enjoy so go and scroll through the uh the the podcast and see if there's something that strikes your fancy um shout out to everybody else in the room what's up to uh alexandra antonio eric mikiko russell and venkata ramana all right yo uh, yo man how's it going man super excited to have you guys here Huge. i like the avocados yeah, thank you. Yeah. Huge, huge news to share with all of you guys today. Um, I put in my two weeks notice at Price Industries earlier this week. I'll be leaving Price. Um, they've been great to me over the last two years. I've really enjoyed the work that I've done there. I'm really happy with some of the progress I've hopefully helped them make uh, over the last couple of years. Um, but next week, next Friday will be my last day there. And um, I'll be moving on to uh, Comet ML. I'll be working full time for my friends over at Comet ML. Um, it's going to be a really interesting position working out of their uh, growth team. I'll be reporting to my friend Austin, and together we're going to come up with some really exciting and engaging community activities. Um, I'll be researching a lot of cool deep learning models using Comet to um, do experiments with them, writing about those experiments, hosting more events like this, um, pushing more content out there for you guys. And um, just in, in general, just being more of me, I feel like this role is such a good alignment with um, with who I've become over the last year. Or so, uh, so I'm really excited about this role. Shout out to uh, Gideon and the team. Uh, thank you so much for for bringing me on board. I'm really excited to do some awesome stuff with you guys. Um, so yeah, man, that's, uh, that's a huge change for me. Um, looking forward to that. Um, yeah, so let's let's kick this let's kick this off with a question. Um, I think last week I might have touched on it. Uh, that this was like one of the um, uh, combatant opening questions that were that I was about to ask, but I think I'll ask it today. And that is, what type of data scientist are you not? Right, data science is a huge field. There are um, a number of different types of data science roles, but what type is not the right fit for you, Eric? Let's start with you. Well, uh, kind of like we said last week. I mean, one of the things I'm not is <clears throat> like I. I don't do anything with deep learning. So that's the kind I'm not currently. Not that I never will be, but that's not what I am right now. Um, I think I've kind of been thinking about what kind of data scientist I am, uh, am or am not in my current role versus where that might evolve to. And that was actually a discussion we were having in my team today, um, saying how some of us have skills that in our current role uh, we're, we're using, we're not using necessarily. And so in my daily role, I am not a, a, I'm not, I don't, I don't do a lot of prediction in my current role. Some, but it's pretty light. It's a, as, uh, as Dave Langer would say, it's a very much a good enough. Is it, is it good enough prediction type thing? Uh, as opposed to, you know, really, really trying to be right 100% of the time. Um, but, you know, I think we're moving in that direction where we'll have more of the predictive stuff. So I am not a trendy, uh, trendy algorithm user data scientist. I can say that confidently. There's lots of things I'm not. I'm also not as cool as Harpreet. You know, it's just, that's just a fact. That's true. You are cooler. That's, that's <laughs> why. 
because for you to be as cool as yeah, I am, as cool as hard. <laughs> uh, yeah. So shout out to everybody that just joined in. Uh, Alexander, what's up? Tom, what's up? Uh, Mikiko, I love the uh, background picture you got there. That is awesome. Uh, Al, what's going on? So uh, everybody listening in on YouTube, on LinkedIn, on Twitch, I'm taking questions. Go ahead and write your question out into the chat. Alternatively, you can join us right here in the room because there's always good side conversations that are happening right there in the Zoom room chat. So by all means, join in on uh, that as well. So the question that we're opening up with is what type of data scientist are you not? Right, Data science is a huge field. Um, job descriptions are wide and varied. But what type of data scientist are you not? Um, so Russell, you have some awesome um, writing here in the chat. Go ahead and tell us uh, what you wrote out there. And then uh, after that, let's go to uh, Alexander. I'd love to hear from you. Thank you, Arthur. Good evening, everybody. Um, so I'm to, basically, I'm not a textbook data scientist. Uh, definitely not. The role that I occupy in everything I do in my um, extracurricular time is just not textbook stuff. I kind of use data science in everything I do. But I would probably expand that to say I am not a data scientist at all. I use data science in my role, but I'm more a business analyst, um, more a, a product specialist, um, more a, a, a PMO and project controls specialist, and I use data science in everything I do. I've been using data science for a long time, uh, and uh, I use a bit of uh, code from a lot of the, uh, the common languages, but if I if I was in a competition and put up against a uh, you know a stone cold data scientist, I would not fancy my chances. You know, I'm I'm the person that translates the stuff that the proper data scientists do for um, for business use. So I translate between the the, the deep learning, uh, the machine learning, the AI, uh, the proper data science, proper data analyst, and I, I translate that for the executives of the business and the. Um, the requirements of, of project delivery, etc. So I kind of sit in the middle of everything. So yeah, if you if I had to say, am I a data scientist or not? I would have to say no, but I certainly use data science in everything I do. Russell, thank you so much. I absolutely love that response. And one of the reasons I wanted to lead with this question was just to show people that there are such diverse career paths within uh, data science itself. Like there are so many different ways you could take your career. Um, shout out to, uh, to everybody else that just joined in. Um, apparently, Makiko has a question for Joe. She bullied Joe to, to join in. Um, so I, I do want to just uh, touch on this opening question one more time. Let me get to uh, I would love to hear Alexandra's uh, response and then maybe Antonio's response. And if Makiko and Joe, if you guys want to join in on this, please let me know. The opening question is, what kind of data scientist are you not? Um, because you know, there's so many different types of data scientists. We all got our own little niche. We all got our own lane. And if anybody else wants to speak on this topic, please let me know. Everybody that's watching out there, lurking in the chats or on LinkedIn and the other streaming platforms, come in, join us or post a question right there. Alexander, go for it. Yeah, it's a, it's a tough question for me, given my background, just because I, don't know, I find the word data scientist really intimidating in general. It sounds like really scary on the surface to me still. Um, I come from a marketing background. I graduated from undergrad last year. And I'm in a grad program now getting my master's of science and analytics. So I feel like I'm, I'm pretty new to the, the data science realm. So am I a data scientist at all yet? I'm not, not quite sure. Am I hoping to get there? Definitely. Um, but yeah, I, I think that just the label data scientist for whatever reason sounds really scary. When you say business analyst, when you say you know, data analyst, for whatever reason, that feels a little bit more like in my wheelhouse or 
maybe that's just coming from my marketing and business background. But the second you put the word science in there, I, I imagine being like a third grader in a little chem lab or something messing up experiments. So yeah, it's funny you, you say uh, you're talking about the word science because I've been going through some um, uh, epistemological crises this week. And I'm wondering, am I doing data science or am I doing data induction? And I'm really trying to figure that out. Uh, anyways, that's not a topic for right now, unless you guys want to pursue that further. But Antonio, let's, let's hear from you. Then after that, we'll go to Makiko's question. Or, uh, you know, if you want to lead with your response to this question as well, Makiko, that'd be great. But go for it. Sure. Yeah. I mean, the first thing that came to my mind is definitely not like a, a mathematician, data scientist. Um, when it, I started doing like, what was that? Uh, Andrew Ang's kids, he starts talking about concave and like all that stuff. And I've taken like some of those classes, but it was to me, it was like, all right, no, not for me. Uh, and I, I think I, I was uh, mentoring some students and they're like, well, I'm really good at like the Python and stuff, but I really wasn't that great at linear algebra. Therefore I'm dropping data science. I was like, I haven't used linear algebra once in like my work. I know it has a place for it and stuff, you know, and some people definitely uh, use it. And so now like there's a lot smarter people, but to get started, especially, I like don't let that discourage you. Um, that's why you have hopefully different teams. Like I have a person on my team who she's very good at statistics. So when I do need them, like I did something here, can you come and look at it? If this makes sense, because you know, it, it, I don't understand all of the, all of the terms, or even if I do understand it, as Eric put in the comments, like I'm not so, so confident in this side. So, uh, I think everybody like Russell, you're definitely a data scientist. I mean, the, the roles are so mixed out there um but everybody needs to like just just apply for the job if you see it out there and because i've seen people who say apply for a data science role and then the whole work is in excel and you know nothing wrong with excel but not typically what somebody would say like data scientist you know but just just go for it thank you very much antonio appreciate that uh mikiko let's go to you for your question and if you want to answer this uh, opening question definitely go for it as well um or jump right into your question however you'd like yes wait can you hear me yeah absolutely okay clear. cool i'm trying out these new headphones they're wireless and they're like cheapy so always always sus right um so i actually put the it's a three-part question <laughs> i'm sorry <laughs> in the chat um uh, <laughs> and that's why i bullied joe so i could get some like free consulting <laughs> recorded um <laughs> so actually okay um so those are the three questions let me just provide a little bit more context um so like very very new to engineering came from the business data science side so i'm used to doing like a lot of like annual and quarterly planning and then you do like monthly updates or something right and so i think the three part question is so i've joined an engineering team and it's like a hardcore engineering team and i'm not a hardcore engineer i'm learning to try to be and i think so basically on the ml engine team we're tasked with building tools and essentially like helping to productionize and develop uh deliver models then um so we have some internal tooling that we've built it does feel like there is like big opportunities to smooth out the process and to uh, not just like make it nicer for everyone, but to just make it more effective. Uh, we're not going to be like, as far as I know, we're not going to be going in on Vertex yet, even though we're a GCP house, we're still trying to figure out how can we sort of do that. Um, so the three-parter question that I put in, because I think this is important, is uh, first off, you know, what do we think should be the relationship between like data science teams, teams and end jobs teams? 
in the sense of like, what is the value that NJOPS teams provide data science teams? Um, and the kind of the second part of it is like, how do we plan initiatives in Eng? Because there's a lot of talk about how delivering for like machine learning teams and data science teams is different from traditional like engineering products. You develop features, da da da. You ship it. You do some kind of agile and scrum. Um, but it feels like sometimes when we do that process, it's very easy to just kind of like fix like little things, do like mini optimizations, and not to sort of tackle kind of high higher value opportunities. So that's like the big, big question that I bullied Joe to like come on the air for since he's working on that data engine book. Well, yeah, and I've also, uh, so, I think I've done all these roles, which is very unique, right? So but what I what I would say is that it depends on um, the top question I would ask is how does your company structure its um, technology teams to begin with? Does it uh, does it focus on a domain? Do we do, do you have teams that focus on different domains? Or is it like the engineering team and, and then they focus on all matters of engineering and, and ops and so forth? Because what this really would mean is um, whether or not you're going to embed a data scientist within a domain functional team that's focused on a specific problem or whether um, data science could perhaps be uh, separate from uh, regular software engineering. And so that, that's the first thing you probably need to clarify. Yeah, I mean, right now, like, so the data science teams are like, they are just, they're, they're their own team and they're part of product for the most okay. part. Who or does, they have like a close relationship with product. Who does, does engineering also report to product? Uh, no, engineering has its own vertical. Um, and it's, I mean, MailChimp's like a pretty big company, right? It's about more than, I think, <laughs> definitely more than a thousand employees. Um, I feel like half of them are engineers, uh, at least. Uh, so each engineering team, like, it does have a functional sort of focus. Um, so the MLNG team I'm on, as far as I know, is the only MLNG team. Um, and we work directly with the data science team. And we have other teams that, for example, do like data eng, right? We have a data eng team that we work with. Um, and then there's also infrastructure. Part of it that's a little bit complicated is like MailChimp uh, was colo for a very long time and so they're just making the move to gcp now and so there's always that question of like how do we mix an open source like what's the right tech mix right mm -hmm. so but it's i feel like this i feel like i don't want to kind of come in and impose like a planning cycle but i do kind of wonder if like we build up these tools and then we sort of kind of expect the data science to piece it together in some workflow which does not necessarily lead to consistent and efficient results necessarily. Yeah, you're going to have some disjointed stuff coming down the pipe probably in several months is what's going to happen. Like, so you need like your engineering. So the application side really does need to work alongside data, uh, I think, in tandem, however that happens, whether that's like product and engineering, figuring out how they're going to have some sort of symbiosis, because otherwise what's going to happen is it sounds like engineering is basically just going to kind of do what they want and data is going to basically be on the receiving end of stuff i.e. like everything flows downhill if you know what i'm saying um so i would figure out like how you're going to make that uh connection between uh you know the different departments first because otherwise what we've seen is like typically data scientists are going to be at the mercy of engineering and really y'all should be like working together on key stuff so there's a workflow between application data science and a good feedback loop right that's in theory, I, I think. How it, and really what we've seen work best is if that's done and like um, you, you can either you can either centralize this 
and have it kind of top down or if you if each team works on a specific um, service for example but then you embed a data scientist along with it and data engineers and so forth so in each step of the each service basically has its own alignment from like app to data and then back again um, yeah it tends to be what I've seen successful but you know the, the anti-pattern would, would really be if like engineering's off doing its own thing and then data science is kind of like trying to figure out how to make all that work without the feedback loop um, it's going to be really difficult yeah and I would be curious to hear from the data scientists on the call for the ones where for the data scientists or data analysts who work with a team that either is an eng team or that productionizes stuff um, I think one of the central I think one of the central philosophy questions that we're dealing with is, um, as a data scientist, what is the experience that you feel like you need in order to like launch models and productionize them and be successful? Um, and does that expectation of the experience that you have, like as an analytics or data science professional, um, does that include, for example, having to pick out your your own solutions? For example, should you be expected to know what tools you need? Or is that a relationship and conversation with your eng ops team? So I'd be kind of curious to hear from any of the data scientists. And Harpreet, since you're moving it, comment at ML. You probably like have an opinion on that as to like what that relationship would ideally look like and what do both parties kind of give and take? Yeah, I mean, when I was at Price, it was just like, I was really the first like role I had where I had de deployed models into production was at, was at Price. And my internal mental standard of if I knew enough was like, all right, can I write this code in such a way that all I have to do is op open up terminal, type in Python and whatever, like, you know, make data set or bake whatever, and everything will just run unbroken. And can I get this to like locally uh, work on my machine? Like, can I go to like a, the, you know, local host and enter in information and have it give me a prediction? Like that was like my internal mental standard of, okay, like I know what I'm doing. I don't know if that answers your question or not, but I think for me, like if I, if, if I could write code like that, then I kind of feel like, all right, this is production ready. Like I literally deployed it on my machine. Now the experts can take over and uh, teach me what I need to know about deploying it into an actual much larger system. Um, and I'll take the parts of it that, that I feel are relevant and the other stuff I'll kind of whatever, put in the back of my mind or take notes on. Um, does that answer your question at all? Or I'm just sharing an anecdote here, but I'd love to hear from a, um, Antonio or Eric on this. I don't know if Joe disappeared or what happened. Um, it's but... okay. I want to weigh in just to yeah. actually give okay. uh, light to Russell's answer in the chat. It's yeah. a really good perspective. And then, of course, Antonio's explaining more of a typical setup. Um, I think they're both good, but I really like the idea of a data scientist that's a good teacher going around and helping enable the uh, subject matter experts to do their own basic machine learning. And then they can work with uh, uh, the ML ops team, whatever, like DevOps for ML to release their own models. And the data scientists can review that stuff. That way the data scientist is amplifying the amount of work they can do by just giving the tools and the basic setup to more people. Thank you, Tom. Hey, um so what, what what I've seen what I've seen successful is kind of like an integrated uh, team uh, where um, so for example the the MLOps team are capable of you know creating some endpoints to serve to software engineers uh, on the DevOps team because you have to think about where are you delivering your system is it going to be like a final product that 
a, a team of software engineers are managing and how do you create that communication loop to serve your ML endpoints to them so they can embed that into their uh, system orchestration. So uh, I've seen software engineers uh, from the DevOps side, from the product side, uh, know enough about MLOps to do it themselves. So it really depends on the company, the culture, how they want to build them and um, having some cross-contamination there. Uh, and, and with that, they would be in touch with, with the data science team as well, who are uh, delivering the algorithms and things like that. So uh, I don't think there's a right way, wrong way of doing it, but there will be some there may be some cross-contamination, but at the end of the day, it's figuring out where you want to serve that that model. What and, and you know, having good connections between systems is is key. Thank you, Greg. McKeegor, uh, are any of these answers providing insight for you? Do you want to turn it back to Joe or do you want to hear from Antonio or how would you like to go? Yeah, definitely. I guess um, just one sort of, God damn it. I had like, I had like a, a nugget of a question based off of uh, what, what Craig was saying. I was like, okay, this is like definitely something that I would like to hear. Um, yeah, I think I'm still just trying to, I guess I'm trying to in my head figure out and I, I don't know if it's because I was on the data science side of the wall uh, between like Eng and data science. Um, because essentially, I think, I guess like my perspective is at the end of the day, we should be building tools and infrastructure for data scientists to use. And if we make it a really good experience, it means that we are less prone to bugs and issues down the line. Um, and we can standardize like the outputs and all that stuff. Um, and I guess like, yeah. So maybe that's just the thing I'm trying to figure out. So I think this was like super helpful. Um, and, and you can go ahead and move on to the next question. I think there's okay. a lot I need to sort of yeah, figure yeah. out. Words, I do want to hear from Antonio on this. And then after Antonio, we'll get to um, Javier's question. And then after Javier will be Eric, then Sorab, then uh, Shishir, who is asking a question on YouTube. Um, I think it'll be a great question for Greg because it's uh, about tips for product people who work closely with data scientists. So. I think I'll probably flip that one over to Yeah, so I don't, I mean, I, I'm not an engineer, right? Or I, I kind of work with the data scientists and the engineers to make sure the models do go into production. But if you do, we have the luxury, right, at a big company. I don't know how, I know every company does it differently, but the data scientists have a lot of work to do. So they don't want to be stuck with like building the pipelines, putting things into production. And like her previous saying, I never know you just press a button and the model just works, right? There's always something that's going to come up. So we have data scientists build the model and soon when they're ready, like they're scored, they hand it off to the uh, engineers who put it in different systems because we have very different teams that use it, right? Maybe one model is going to be used by four different systems. So they handle that onboarding. Um, they do the like the pipeline, like, like you're saying, uh, making sure everything is like smooth, and uh, also what they've been involved in is having kind of like dashboards uh, monitoring the models, looking for degrading performance, uh, looking and, and things like that. So that's how it's done in my organization. But again, uh, I guess it depends how many resources you have. Yeah, I think um, we can move on to the next question. But actually, uh, in the comments, um, just a final thought is that it feels like to some degree the industry is really specializing, but it also feels like there is a lot of people who still sort of want to expect the full full stack data scientists 
So um, in the comments, I would love if all y'all could just let me know. First off, uh, do you think the full stack data scientists actually exist? My full stack, I mean, deploying and DevOps, like including data science, but also includes DevOps and infra. Uh, and secondly, do you feel like that's a paradigm that should continue existing, especially as companies get bigger and scale? Um, I kind of feel like when you're a bigger company, you do want specialists to some degree um, and you sort of want to organize accordingly. But I would love to hear um, how engineering heavy all y'all feel like data scientists should be. Um, be really interested to know that. So. I would say welterweight. That's probably the heaviness <laughs> that that uh, I am as a engineering data scientist. But uh, Mark, what do you think? I'd love to hear from you on this. Yeah, I would say like <clears throat> at a startup, that's probably a yes. But why I found myself is like I'm never on one project where I'm doing the whole thing end to end. It's a matter of where the resources at and like where I need to fill in. So one project I might be heavy engineering. Another project I might be heavy analytics. And another project, it might be heavy, like thinking about like data, data warehouse infrastructure and whatnot. And so um, maybe like a yes, no, like I have as a startup, I have to have all the skills to jump in where needed to drive value. But if, you know, if I'm doing everything end to end, I won't be exhausted. I'm probably going to be working on one project. And that's not really feasible in a startup because I need to work on many projects and like, where's the fire and priority at? Over Joe. Yeah, I would say that that might have been the full stack data. I mean, I, I've been called that before, um, and it's a term I didn't feel comfortable with because it reminded me a lot of like the full stack um, kind of software engineer from back in the day, where you'd be good at both front end and back end. And I think you might be like decently okay at putting up an MVP, which if that's what you're trying to do is great. But ultimately, you know, it's specialization is key. But I, I understand there's a balance between like budget for one thing, right? Like data people aren't cheap. So, um, but then also as Tom points out, finding the, uh, um, the, the, per the full stack person is, uh, yeah, that's a unicorn of a person. Like I, I would maybe consider myself full stack, but that's only because I had to be, it's not like I, it was a thing I sought out to like, Oh yeah, I'm going to like be really mediocre at everything. That's great. Um, so but then, you know, I've specialized since then, you know, and I mean, I think the, you know, the engineering side is where I focus. Uh, I'm probably less inclined to focus on algorithms these days, not because I'm not interested in it, but just because it's the value for a person like myself as an engineering. So, but yeah, it, it depends on the data maturity of a company. I would definitely say full stack is something, somebody you're gonna have to find, but then couple that with like tooling though. I think there's a lot of great tooling out there that exists now that could help automate um, and augment a lot of the functions that weren't really prior, you know, previously done by hand, like uh, putting models into production, hosting them. I mean, Lord knows there's like a million Flask uh, tutorials on how to do this. And I think that's just obsolete these days. If you're using like Vertex, just deploy it that way and just set, you know, set it and forget it. So I think a lot of the undifferentiated heavy lifting is being automated, thankfully, with great tooling. But still, it's super early days in the field. I mean... Uh, I look at the, the the modern ML stack right now, uh, quote unquote, and it's like you get the sense it's it's being baked as we speak, but it's nowhere near where it's going to be in a few years. So long winded answer. I'm not even sure I answered your question, but no, I got some. I got some good value out of that. I mean, should be a full snack data scientist. Like salty, say, yeah. salty, sweet nuts, chocolate, fruit, berries, all that full snack. Um, all right, let's go to. Uh, Javier's question, then after Javier, it's Eric, then Saurabh, then Shishir from YouTube, then Lavina from LinkedIn, and then there's a couple other comments coming in from LinkedIn as well. Uh, those of you on LinkedIn, you can just join us in the room. 
uh, Javier, go for it. Thank you. So yeah, I'm just curious to know what percentage of your time is spent on analysis or data science, you know, modeling around structured data versus unstructured data. Um, I feel like in grad school, I read a lot about unstructured data and obviously learned a lot about, you know, NLP, at least in concept, but I'd say like 99.9% of my day job is like tabular data, structured data. Um, and I work for a larger organization. So I feel like it, the data is actually pretty complete. Maybe there are, um, you know, integrity issues from data entry, uh, but the data is typically very complete. Like I don't deal with a lot of messy or nasty data. Um, but, you know, I'm just curious because you see so many people focus online or LinkedIn or, you know, blogs about all the unstructured data analysis they're doing. And I just don't do much of that right now. I think it's neat. I just don't do it. So I'm curious about other, you know, active data scientists, what they do at work. So Mark has a, a more clarifying question here. Uh, can you define how you are thinking about unstructured data? I'm thinking like either someone submitting a help ticket or um, mostly text, but just like freehand text submission or text capture, like, you know, capturing tweets or something. Like I, I do none of that, but that, that would be an example. I'd like to chime in on that one, Harpreet. Yeah, please go for it. Um, I think what um, Dave, what is it, Dave Langer? He says that one of his things, like 80% of data science is going to be like, if you know regression analysis and Harpreet actually just posted on that, I think you'll be pretty ready to go. Um, and like logistic regression, right? Uh, things like that. But I, I had an opportunity in my previous role to, to work with um, a good amount of unstructured data. And that was because I was doing kind of risk management and compliance. And there was a lot of customer service calls or people chatting in uh, to, to complain about like a rep or something they were wrong. So that kind of gave me an opportunity to mess around with that, like trying to to find frosters based on patterns they're saying, um, trying to um, predict based on the somebody using what kind of language they're using when they're chatting in, trying to see if they're actually the person who they say they are. Um, so it was a lot more uh, kind of like MVP rather than production because with with speech data, especially when somebody's calling over the phone, they have a low voice or they have an accent and it doesn't pick it up correctly. I mean, the amount of funny stuff that I found, like where it's been transcribed wrong, like uh, uh, one that I always share is I was looking for something called advanced search and it came up as a dancer search over and over again. I'm like, this doesn't make sense. Like, why is this guy calling like Verizon asking for like dancers and stuff? You know, so <laughs> that's kind of like, I think one of the reasons why uh, I think unstructured data is fun and it's important to learn. And like, if you have the interest for it, I know Harpreet is really big into that. So I'm waiting for his big projects to come through. Um, but I, I just think in general that there's going to be a lot more opportunities for like a regular regression analysis or more structured data that you are going to be, be able to work with. But if you like it, hey, don't give up. I think there's use cases depending where you are. Um, it's just the nature uh, of the work. Yeah, in my you know currently current rollout price, um, which if you guys did not hear, uh, I gave my two weeks notice earlier this week. I'm leaving price on August 6th and heading over to Comet ML. But at price, everything I did was tabular data. Uh, even at Bold Commerce, a lot of what I did was 
um, tabular data. We had one project where we we're scraping uh, reviews of our product from the web. And uh, that was just a matter of putting structure to the unstructured data and just capturing it in a way that was useful. Um, in this new role that I'm going into, it's going to be you know mostly researching deep learning models and doing fun stuff like that. I assume it's going to be a lot of unstructured data. Um, but to answer your question, um, for me, pretty much all of my work at work has been up until now, all structured data, unstructured data is just like for fun on projects and things like that. Uh, Mark, let's go to you. And then uh, then Ben, just to, to loop you in on the question that's been asked here is what percentage of your uh, day or your, the work that you do has been with uh, just tabular structured data? So maybe after uh, after Mark, if anybody wants to go, um, let me know. I'll go for Mark. It, I think it's really heavily dependent on your domain and uh, kind of problem use case. So for example, my previous role was in healthcare. And we had access to, I think, like 80% of all electronic health records in the U.S. for like ophthalmology, which is like an insane amount. And if you've ever worked, seen an electronic health record, it's um, probably one of the messiest things I've ever dealt with um, data wise. And, you know, I think my job there was 70% dealing with unstructured data. And like, it'll be a simple thing like, hey, tell me all the times that a patient um, received the surgery, but there's not a specific code for it because it's a new surgery. So I'll look in the notes and so you'll see like discuss surgery, uh, decline surgery, surgery uh, was started, right? And you'll have all of these kind of false pauses popping up all the time for that. And many times my work was like getting the unstructured data into a structured format to actually work with. And so even though like you are working with unstructured data, like I feel like many times the goal is to put into a structured format. So like a model or like even counts or analysis can even uh, understand it. Um, so I think like a great example is like thinking about NLP. If you do like count vectorizer where you're counting all the words in a sentence, that's putting into like a tabular format for that. Um, in my current role, um, we also have survey data, but again, I think thinking about the problem of use case and data maturity, my I probably spent maybe like 5% of my total time at Humu working with unstructured data. And another thing I want to know is like, I also, um, why I asked the clarifying question, like, what do you mean by unstructured data? Like it's, it's already like clearly in a tabular form. So even though I work with a lot of tabular data, our data is in a NoSQL database and it's very nested and it's designed for like web apps. <laughs> and so I have to work many times to like um, play around with the data to get into a tabular format because it's nested like four layers deep. So I think the main takeaway that I got is like, even though like I was working on unstructured data or like different types of unstructured data, a lot of my work is putting it back into a structure format to, to use. And if you potentially want to get more experience with that in your current role, maybe go talk and say like, where's the data being captured upstream? I want to be experienced with that data, understand the logic that's happening upstream, because many times that might be a, a more kind of raw unstructured format and you can use your expertise as a data professional on the end on the end of it to inform better logic for it yeah i've had my fair share of really gnarly json blobs i guess I, does that technically count as unstructured i'm not i'm not sure um, i don't know yeah yeah but yeah it's a lot of work putting into structured format wait ben can you just throw it into data robot like you can do with pictures and just let it do everything for you or you you can really wow it, yeah you, um, so to 
so Mark, what you were saying makes a lot of sense. I like to say that unstructured data is data that's waiting to be structured. So no matter what we're talking about, you can find a way to structure it. So are we talking about audio? Are we talking about video? Are we talking about images? There will be some way to structure that into some encoding. And then once you get that encoding, it's very straightforward to start pulling it all together. But yeah, yeah this yeah. stuff is getting way easier than it used to be. Yeah. Like three years ago, I was like, push up the glasses and... Time to work for months trying to do these heroics. Um, what about you? Uh, and then if Alexandra or anybody else, Makiko, uh, Greg, if any of you guys want to chime in, Eric, um, let me know. Uh, if not, then we can move on to Eric's question. Uh, but go for it for right now, Tom. Um, yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. Were you asking me? I've got yeah, a lot of background me. noise. I'm yeah, sorry. no problem. Yeah, we're asking uh, uh, to to answer um, Javier's question, I guess, what proportion or how much of the data you work on is structured tabular data as opposed to unstructured? Oh, so this is interesting. Um, I, I put this in the chat too. About 98% of my work is converting PDFs to text and creating clever tokenizers and other math machines to pull the data out of that and put it into a structured SQL database. The only other thing I was going to add is I died for uh, JSON files. I think they're wonderfully structured. They're just in a NoSQL type format. Uh, but basically, Python dictionaries when we get down to it. So, but yeah, it's uh, it's been uh, obfuscated by the fact that uh, the types of PDFs I'm looking through are not consistently structured. But, um, and because the terminology used in these technical data sheets that are often in PDF, um, test standard, spot on. Finding a, a, a units and uh, numerical values next to that and doing some heterogeneous clustering, piece of cake. Now trying to take the vast array or variance in the way manufacturers speak uh, in the product names and describing those properties, it's all over the place. And so trying to, the, the tool that I've created to try to best capture that part of it, it I call it dung beetle because it makes structure from crap. <laughs> and uh, so it's, but it's all these hats. It really should have been done by a big team, but I'm doing it all by myself. And it's fun, but causes me to pucker for the length of time it's taking. So a lot of unstructured data. That was probably more than y'all wanted to hear. Uh, thank you, Tom. Appreciate that. Um, let's just go ahead and uh, breeze to Eric's question. And then after Eric, we'll go to Saurabh, then Shushir from YouTube, then Levine on LinkedIn, then Dwayne on LinkedIn. And if anybody else has questions, please do. Let me know. No, I just you, Eric. Go for it. All right. My answer to the previous question is yeah. all structured data. <laughs> um, so, my question is: This is just kind of in general. How do you how do you prioritize? Um, is your is your work ticket based? Do you choose your products? Do or projects? Do others choose your projects? And then also, how do you keep different stakeholders? Um, apprised of what's going on. And I can give that just a little bit more context around that. So I support two different verticals. Um, and so I have like product and marketing over here and the GM. And then the other vertical is a lot smaller. And so it's basically just the GM. And so I kind of have 
four-ish stakeholders, none of which are my actual manager. Um, and I, I pretty much get to choose my projects. I have a little JIRA board and I have tickets that I'll put up there to help me keep track of things, but I pretty much get to choose. Um, and so my, the thing I want to get ahead of so that it doesn't bite me later is keeping people like Greg knowing what's going on when I'm working on Tom's project. Um, and like, how, how do I keep those stakeholders happy? Is it, do they just look at the board? Do I just have to like train them to look at the board? Is it a weekly something like an email? I don't want it to be a meeting if I can avoid it. Um, so I just kind of want to hear what other people do and what's been successful or horribly, painfully unsuccessful, whatever. Just want to learn from you. Yeah, definitely. Let's go to Makiko. Then after Makiko, we'll go to Greg. I think we did talk about this in our podcast as well, Greg. So I'd love to hear your answer on this. And if uh, if anybody else wants to chime in here, Lee, you're welcome to. If you want to uh, uh, jump in here or, or Mark or Alexandra, everybody's voice is welcome here at the Artists of Data Science Happy Hour. Go for it, Makiko. Yeah, so I think there's, um, I guess like there's two components I'm thinking of in that question. Um, so one, and I'll give you the perspective of um, what the data science team, how they structure their approach and the eng team, how they structure approach their our work log. Um, so the data science team, uh, the way they do it is they work directly with the product managers to, you know, implement models and features, right? So in that regard, product sets the priority, although data science can sometimes uh, recommend like projects that they think are super interesting and would be provide business value. Sure. Um, so they have like a set of stages they go through. And what they do is similarly track uh, the tickets within that stage within JIRA. Um, something I've seen some teams do is they will like auto-generate, temp- they'll do templates to auto-generate tickets. So it kind of saves a little bit of that ticket creation, which mm-hmm. is really nice. Um, so they have a JIRA dashboard and then their manager will take that and sort of communicate it or put a nice little packaging around how to communicate it because a lot of times business partners they don't want to see what you're working on they want to see like they want to see how close you are to like achieving their outcome basically um like so they only really care about other people's work if it could tie in with their work or if it will impact your ability to work on their stuff essentially right. um so taking that kind of lens um Okay, well, let me, and then, so for the engineering team, we work on tickets, um, things are like broken out as features or bugs or whatever, right? So those are two very different kind of like workflows. One's very project-based, the other one is like, we gotta like do more close to the Scrum or Agile approach. Um, I think in general with business stakeholders though, uh, and this is something that sort of drove me nuts when I was working as an analyst, is that they may say they want total visibility. Um, that is not what they really want, that's what they think they want. Uh, what they want is like the hit points, which is, um, what are you doing for me? How's it going? And are there any landmines that I need to be aware of um, before it blows up when I present my QBR? Sorry, your QBR analysis, but I'm gonna present it for my business division and I don't want the director to call me out on bad stuff or not have it. So uh, to that end, what I found is uh, one, having like an email summary, like kind of every week really helps hmm. where you don't say list like the tasks, you list the like, you know, what what was the impact or, or whatever, right? Or even if you do tasks, you just wrap it up in a, we create a dashboard and we added some additional filters, right? So you can drill down on these things um, and then give them access to the Jira board, but don't realistically expect them to actually, you know, use it to know what's going on. I like don't even expect them to make tickets most of the time. Like if it's super detailed, I'll ask them to, but otherwise I'll just make it myself. Like I'm the one who's yeah. going to use it. 
honestly, email, like the email response, the email newsletter is great. And then eventually setting up like weekly or biweekly meetings. So you, yeah, just, yeah. you can just give them an update because that's something that I think we struggle with is we'll send out Slack messages or emails and then uh, people read it, but it doesn't like sink in. They're like, oh, this is going to fundamentally change your workflow until they run up into an issue or they're like, wait, I thought I was going to get this thing today. It's like, no, 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 no. We talked about this two weeks ago. You are, you're not getting this thing today. Oh no. Why didn't you tell me? But, but, but I did tell you in an email. See the documentation. But I don't read emails. So those like 30, like even a 30 minute weekly really just, it will go a long way. So that's my, that's my two cents. Thank you, Makito. Let's go to, uh, to Greg. Uh, what's up, Kenji's in the house. Kenji, so the question that uh, Ken was at, I'm sorry, not Ken, the question Eric was asking was, uh, how do you prioritize when you've got competing demands from various stakeholders and, and the like? So I uh, definitely would love to hear from you if you've got any insight on that. But for now, we'll go to Greg. And if anybody else has any tips to share with Eric, please let me know. Um, by the way, if you guys have questions, drop them into the chat or comment section wherever you are, and I will get to them. Go for it, Greg. Yeah, uh, thanks for that question. I like it. Um, this is pretty much where uh, I, I work. I deal with all the time, and um, I focus on who who's my customer, and uh, also uh, separate the what you want versus what you need, and then um, really prioritize the what you need, and also let my customer determine uh, what is the impact. Because at the end of the day, if you're a part of the business, you will tell me what value fixing this issue will bring to you, to your business. And with that, you have prioritization. Now, if you have multiple groups, then you want to find the person at the top, top S test, creating words here, who will say prioritize this versus that because you have conflicting needs. Everybody wants to cry wolf. Everybody wants their things to be prioritized, but somebody at the top on the business side will have to say so. What goes first, second, third, etc. So from a prioritization perspective, this is how I do it. And also uh, you have uh, the other aspect of it, which is how do you keep uh, in touch, stay in touch with the evolution of projects. I think it comes down to one thing, which is communication. And what are we all aligning with in terms of communication? Is it going to be uh, monthly email updates or is it going to be ongoing tapping into some sort of system or dashboard, et cetera? I think Mikiko hit it right on the head um, when she mentioned what business folks want. Uh, I have two different type of monthly, bi-weekly communications. Some are focused on uh, text, tech uh, audience. Some are focused on business on the very same project. And the language is quite different. Somebody on the tech side will understand where everything stands, whether there are system integrations, uh, uh, stack setup, uh, you name it. Um, anything from a technical side, all the tasks are uh, clearly laid out in where we are, where we're complete, uh, we're um, in a bad shape, we're about to complete it on time, et cetera. Uh, the other side of the business, exactly what Mikiko said, they want to make sure there isn't any obstacles because they will take that. And their goal is not to look ugly, is to make sure that uh, they have the high level overview of how the project progresses and also staying in line and there isn't any drift. Uh, and uh, with that any communication you have, some monthly update that you provide to them, they want to see the red lines first to make sure whether you need help from them or you already have a plan to address 
these issues. So you want to clearly state uh, what uh, you're doing about those. And uh, typically, they are happy to read the green stuff. Uh, so, uh, you know, they can continue to give you a pat on the back and themselves. Uh, but at the end of the day, the format for both is you want to uh, give an overview of the project or where you are, uh, talk about the highlights, talk about the low lights, talk about whether you need help or not, etc. And then uh, uh, regardless, uh, for both teams, both audience, you want to make sure that you uh, ask for help right away at the beginning because people don't have time to go through everything. Uh, you may find that different communications uh, formats might be so lengthy to consume. So you want to put the most important stuff, information or information at the top to get everybody's attention. And then at the end of the day, communication is the key here. Greg, I put a link to our presentation together in this chat. Uh, I was starting to toot our horns because uh, I don't normally talk like that, but I was really proud of what Greg and I put together presentation-wise. In case y'all haven't seen a version of it, I, I think this... This was probably one of the earlier versions, but still, we, we really like doing this together. We have a later version of the slide set, and we've done it individually too, but uh, I think that's worth a listen, and it's a work in progress, so if any of you would be great, uh, would be willing to give us con some constructive criticism, um, you know, not on our hairstyles or anything like that, but uh, only do that to Ben Taylor, but otherwise on the content, we'd appreciate it. Tom, thank you so much. I just posted the link there on LinkedIn. Uh, so anybody wants it uh, on LinkedIn, you. it is right there for you. Um, love to hear what anybody else has to say on this topic, uh, Lee or Ben or uh, Alexandra or anyone. Um, also, just looks like Lee's building really cool rockets or something back there. Uh, I don't know yeah, thanks for uh, letting me chime in. Um, yeah, no I'm coming from a, from the other side of the fence in project management. And to be honest with you, it's like the like when you order a steak, uh, you really don't care where they went to to pull it all together. You just want it on your plate. So uh, a lot of people uh, don't understand uh, what it takes to to get that there. And the more information that you can provide on the process and bring people in, like like you're doing with this happy hour. If you can bring people together like that, those go miles as far as celebrating success and building on, on successful stuff. But uh, communication, I think you, you're, you're exactly right on target. I mean, if, if, uh, if you're ghosting somebody or just, you know, ignoring them or, or just busy, um, you know, you, it, let them know that, that, that goes a miles and miles for, for getting things done really well. Oh, and I also want to point out too, somebody mentioned something about uh, being expensive. Um, <laughs> trying not hiring a data science or a specialist that can do that at, at, at the top level that you need. And I guarantee it's going to cost you a lot more. So, um, yeah, that's just the price to pay to play the game. So, uh, don't ever discount the fact, the value that you bring to a party, uh, that expertise and level of practice is, is amazing. And, uh, it, yeah, it's expensive when you don't hire the right people. Thank you very much, Lee, and definitely have, you know stick around for a, a question coming up soon about uh, tips for product people who are working closely with data scientists. Uh, we'll get there after Sorb's question, but I see Sorb has his hand up right I, now. So. I have to call a foul, Harpreet. Oh, damn yeah. it, Lee! Friday afternoon, and you mentioned steak. What the hell, dude? <laughs> I'm a vegetarian, so uh, it doesn't matter. Well, we can uh, we can get some lobster then. Okay. <laughs> uh, yeah, let's go to uh, let's go to Sorb then then Ken Sorb. Uh, go for it then. Uh, go to Ken. 
I just wanted to chime in on the uh, stakeholder management question. How do we balance um, different competing priorities? Uh, I'm also from project management background, and uh, this is almost a day-to-day uh, challenge, uh, really. Um, when when you're like insanely busy, I think some some very simple questions would can help uh, help prioritize. For example, if like ten people are asking you for for some information, uh, you just um, you just ask them what is uh, by when do they need this uh, a um, and secondly um, just uh, just tell them uh, I'm just in the middle of X Y Z. So they they understand uh, you know we can't say I'll check my calendar I'm I'm too busy. Just in the middle of making a report for so and so, when do when do you need the answer? And uh, second uh, second uh, technique or strategy I use is when they ask a question, it is we really need to dig what information they are looking for. For example, they might ask you, can you give me that document? You can ask a, a probing question, um, like what exactly you are looking for, so that I can you know give you the spec the correct info. So just just dig uh, further and and just ask for specifics and just tell them that uh, when ask them when do they need that info and I think that should help prioritize to some extent. Awesome, thank you very much, Saurabh. Uh, we'll come right back to you uh, for your question after we hear from Ken on this one. Go for it, Ken. Yeah, so I hope this isn't redundant. I tuned in a little late. I apologize, uh, but but something I found really powerful, uh, especially if I have good rapport with the business stakeholder. Uh, and they have some analytic capability is keeping them very involved in the process that I'm going through. So if I'm working on something and you know, like I have to prioritize, if if you can show that you're making progress, if the if the people know that you're you're working on something, that can be that's a lot of the time just what they they want. They don't necessarily want it done at a certain time. They just want to know that progress is being made, and that's very powerful when it comes to versioning tools like GitHub. You know, if you're you know r- routinely um, you know, at, at least making commits, doing whatever. Um, that's something that can carry a lot of weight. Often, if I'm working with a specific client, uh, as I'm going and building visuals, I'll shoot over a couple slides and say, hey, like, you know, this is what we're working on. Obviously not a finished product, but, uh, you know, feedback along that process can actually save time in the end product as well. So I think that making your work a little bit more public, as weird as that sounds, can pay dividends. Obviously, there are times when you shouldn't do that or when it'll put a, put a wrench in things. But uh, outside of the box, I think that that's something that uh, that really can help with stakeholder management uh, and also endearing you to, to a lot of the business stakeholders. If they feel like they're part of the process, uh, that's also a very powerful thing. Ken, thank you so much. Uh, Mikiko, go for it. Yeah, I mean, something I, to be honest, wish I had really understood um, like my first couple of years of kind of working in the Alex space was also, and I think this is general to lots of different functions, it's not just Alex, but it's understanding kind of your lines of influence. That's something that, because the thing I used to do was like, I would just say yes to everything. And I would just try to like manage the timelines and just try to stack it. And uh, well, yeah, not only is that terrible on your health, but also it actually doesn't really make people happy. And part of it is just like that 20, like 80, 20 thing, right? Like there's probably 20% of the work that the key stakeholders, that for the key stakeholders will drive 80% of like their incentive, whether it's, you know, to get promoted or to get like an initiative passed or something like that. Um, so that's something I, I personally kind of wish I had understood a little bit better in that, um, you know, when you get like 10 or 15 stakeholders, um, at one point I was supporting a team of 
30 <laughs> internationally uh, over at Autodesk on the construction, like on the, on the BIM side, right? And, um, or customer success side, product, customer success and product, right? Lots and lots of key stakeholders, lots of different like hands and different fingers. And it's also a very atomized company too. So that probably didn't help. Um, but something that like someone had told me there was number one, like ruthlessly prioritize, like emphasis on ruthlessly. Um, but the second part is like understand kind of, I don't want to say like the battlefield strategy, because that just sounds really aggressive, but it's like really understand like what are the levers and what are the lines of influence. So for example, if you have 10 people that are coming up to you asking for stuff, um, while I don't want to say the hippo wins, um, it's really good to align with like what is actually the strategic value or what, it, what do you like, for example, their managers care about? Like what does their director care about? Um, and that's not to say like you then go pick the projects or the pick the stuff you work on, but it's the like if you're in a crunch and you really have to pick like three of five, um, being able to like, uh, like align with their, you know, line of reporting and understand what are their priorities will really, really help because you're not making the decision on what to kind of focus on. You're asking them, be saying like, Hey, I got like 40 hours in a week. Um, the kind of scope of work right now is at like 65 or 70. Uh, so of those 70 hours, you know, where, where do you want to put those 40 hours? Um, so I think it's really good to be proactive about that. And it's also really good to like, I had this habit of like not bringing my manager when I need to sometimes. Um, and usually you kind of don't want to do that. It's, it's, it's kind of like escalating a little bit, but at the same time too, sometimes your manager can also provide that insight, like as to, you know, this is like what the business priorities are. And also like they will advocate on your behalf with the other managers. So I feel like something that is like part of that thing that like people kind of don't talk about except for like in, in some low key, like business dev or self-development guides is the like, understand what are the levers around you that you can sort of, um, I don't say manipulate, but you can, you know, use to uh, accomplish kind of like what you need to do. And as well as, you know, hopefully help your business partners accomplish their goals. So that's uh, something I wish I had developed earlier on. Thank you, Mikiko. Go for it, Mark. Um, I think I think Mikiko actually just touched on it at the end. I was going to say a really great resource is your manager. Um, if you have that rapport, and um, I think Mikiko also made a great point of like that escalation component. When I talk to my manager, I don't frame it as escalation. Um, early on, I, I should have said like, "Hey, I'm really trying to get better at prioritization um, in our org. Uh, this is the key thing I'm working on. This may not work at a more senior level, but I'm taking advantage of me still being new. Um, so I'll go to my manager, be like, "Hey, I'm really trying to hone in on this prioritization. You know, these are the things I'm working on. There's my current set of skills." This is how I'm thinking about being prioritized. What are your thoughts on it? Um, and so it's less of an escalation and more so like seeking mentorship from your uh, from your manager if you have that rapport with them. And it's been extremely effective. And more importantly, by asking those questions, I get key insight like how my manager prioritizes things. And so I can deliver to that that kind of audience over and over again because my manager is kind of like my main person um, who's going to be, uh, you know, I have my stakeholders, but my manager's going to be the person like, do I get promoted or not? Do I, um, are they happy with my work, right? And so knowing how they prioritize things is really helpful for me as well. Thank you, Mark. Uh, let's go ahead and, uh, oh, Lee, you got a... Uh, well, I just wanted to, to, to mention, Mark, that is really brilliant. That That's a smart way to do it. Um, I would only uh, caboose one thing onto that is that um, if you have your, your, your plan A, this is the way you're going to attack it. Have a plan B that says, hey, if I get this, I can do this. So, you know, open up the picture there so that the, they, they got the option to say, oh, no, just keep going the direction you're going. Or wait a second, I'll get you the resources that you need so you can do something bigger. Uh, but that's that's brilliant, Mark. That's exactly the right direction to go in. Uh, I saw that Eric was briefly muted. There. Did you want to 
add in some? Oh, yeah, I just want to say that was super helpful. And I'll t- toss in one small thing. Like today, <clears throat> I had someone on one of the teams ask me to do something that I was pretty sure is not really and not really my responsibility. And so it was nice because I was able to talk to somebody and say, hey, like, I don't think this is my thing. I can do it, but I don't think this is my thing. The person who can do it will be back on Monday. And, and you know, then I just sent him back a response email that just said, this isn't, you know, this isn't really my responsibility. I can help you in a pinch, but this person will be back on Monday. So I'm looping him in. And, you know, as far as I know, based on his email response, he doesn't hate me. And, uh, you know, the sun will come up tomorrow. So it was all, it was all good. But yeah, this is really helpful for thinking of like that, like longer, the longer term, just maintaining good momentum and stuff. So thank you so much. Yeah, definitely. Excellent question. Thank you so much, Eric. Uh, Sorb, let's go to your question. You got two questions in here, but you're gonna have to pick one of them, right? You gotta, you gotta pick wisely. I know you sent me two questions, but just pick one and then we'll go to uh, the questions here from Shashir on YouTube, then Lavina on LinkedIn, then Dwayne Whitfield on LinkedIn as well. Okay, here's my test for to be concise. Then, uh, uh, for a, for an entry level data analyst, um, you know there is a lot of material, a um, uh, lot of technical material available. But how does one prepare, uh, you know, for for a particular domain? Now, when, when I say entry level, I, I want to apply like across domains. Uh, I want to apply anywhere that I get a good, say, data analyst position. How do I um, show value uh, in terms of domain knowledge, not not technical? So, um, Can I ask a clarifying to... question on that? Yes, please. I was about to ask one as well. Go for it. Okay. So when you say domain, I have a couple of thoughts that come to mind. Do you mean like, you know, data stuff, but is it in marketing versus in, mm-hmm. uh, you know, some other area of the business? Or do you mean like it's in biotechnology versus, uh, I don't know, manufacturing products versus a digital product? What do you mean domains? Mm-hmm. Um, what I mean is uh, domains like healthcare, automobile, um, government, weather forecast, like those kind of domains. Okay. And so the question is, how do you kind of get up to speed and learn about what's important for those industries? Yeah. I mean, I cannot, like, I cannot be good in like five domains. Got it. So we're like the underlying, yeah, like the underlying universal skills type of thing, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, definitely equal, right? You should definitely be good and comfortable and uh, very proficient with SQL. That is an absolute must, right? Um, you're going to have to be comfortable with creating reports and do an analysis that's like exploratory data analysis in general, right? Um, and maybe some basic uh, skills on how to come up with metrics or how to drive metrics and a little bit of stats and stuff in there as well. Ken, go for it. Yeah, I think I probably mentioned this every time I, I come in here, but uh, to me, one of the most effective ways to show that is through your project work and your portfolio. Let's say you wanted to get involved in healthcare. I think there's almost always a Kaggle competition that leverages some form of health data. To me, that's something that, uh, you know, frankly, a Kaggle competition can be a lot of work, but at the same time, you could create a notebook or you could showcase some of the skills within that domain. Uh, I actually recommend um, not necessarily doing like a broad strokes application to different data science position. I think it makes a lot of sense to target specific industries at a time that you're most interested in. And let's say you're working, you want to work and you identified you want to work in energy, uh, healthcare, or um, sports, right? To do three projects in your portfolio, one on each of those, it shows pretty good range, but it also shows that you have very specific subject knowledge on each of those main domains, more so than someone who hadn't uh, previously looked into that data before. Um, I would generally recommend people to have 
more than four projects in their portfolio, um, just in general. Um, but if you're thinking about that, uh, you know, based on the domains that you're looking at, you could have one or you could have multiple associated with a specific domain. Uh, I know specifically in sports, which is the domain in which I work, most people are landing jobs, not from applications, but from see people actually seeing their projects and getting recruited that way. It's a very difficult domain to break into, um, but they're being chosen almost specifically for their domain knowledge. So there must hopefully be some truth to that. Thank you very much. That was a stellar, stellar advice. Uh, let's go to Greg. And wait, who is it, Greg or Mark? That was first. Uh, I think Greg, because he's all right. Yeah, Greg. Oh, I, I just wanted to add a little bit on 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 Kenji. Build up on Kenji. I think uh, from what I'm hearing, Sharab, you you want to focus more on the domain, but more of the non-technical skills, right? So how can you? Yes. So with, with that, I think you you want to focus on your communication skills, right? How do you explore the work that you've done? How do you uh, apply your critical thinking skills? You want to showcase uh, that you're able to analyze and not just mechanically uh, produce an output mm -hmm. and uh, leave the audience to interpret what you found, but you want to display the, your level of critical thinking uh, where you're exploring different uh, outputs and uh, or different solutions and what their outputs would be, what or the, the risk would be, et cetera, et cetera. So you do this for an area of interest. I think anyone looking to hire will see that critical thinking piece in you that you can transfer to any industry that you go to. I think it's uh, evidence that I completely misunderstood that question, but sorry, sorry, go for it. No, no, uh, great, um, great inputs from uh, Ken and, and Greg there and uh, very, very useful. Thank you. Yeah, uh, let's go to Mark on this one. And then maybe after Mark, we'll uh, head to some other questions. Um, I've got some um, up here. I was about to say a, qu a quick way for you to like uh, get industry knowledge and domain experience without like I put in the comments that you know it took me years and like a master's and to get domain knowledge in healthcare but healthcare is a very specialized thing and that's not necessarily like fully required but that's my personal personal path but a piece that really helps me is doing informational interviews with domain experts and talking to them all the time to give you an example the last venture I tried uh, we tried building pharmaceutical software so I had the domain knowledge of like healthcare data and structures but I knew nothing about pharmacists and pharmacies. And so I went on LinkedIn to, so to learn how to build our first MVP. I went on LinkedIn and started messaging a whole bunch of pharmacists who are not technical and saying like, can I learn about your, your pain points? Can I learn about like what you're trying to build, what you're facing? Um, from there, I actually pulled a list of every single pharmacy in the country and, and their phone number and started cold calling pharmacies because I'm trying to do user interviews and I'll call them. Many times they'll be like, you know, why do I want to talk to you and hang up on me? It is what it is. That's part of the, the founder kind of process. But if you want to go the extreme way to start talking to people, be like, hey, I'm trying to learn more about pharmacy. Can I get five minutes of your time? Here are my detailed questions. And they're going to give you keywords. You're going to have no idea what they mean. Write those keywords down, right. research it, find the white papers, find everything, and then go back to future conversations and be like, hey, I talked to another pharmacist who, who talked about X, Y, Z. Can you tell me more about that? And you start building and building. Right. And many times, like the, the I think Steve Blank, who, who's like the lean launch pad, he was like, you need to do 100 user interviews before you can understand like a, a, a product um, to start building MVP. Um, you know, maybe Ben could probably talk more of this because he's gone through that whole process. But... 
uh, for me, you know, talking to those domain experts gave me the, the language to start talking to other pharmacists so that I can learn kind of like the language and like be not on the same playing level, but like, so they knew I knew enough to help them for when I was building the product. Yeah, that point about like keywords is super, super important because without the right vocabulary, like it's very difficult to find what it is you're looking for. So I really like that you mentioned that. Uh, Sora, uh, great tips there. Um, anybody else want to chime in here? If not, we got uh, three more questions left. Um, doesn't look like it. We'll go to the questions. So question here from Shishir uh, on YouTube. Any tips for product people who work closely with data scientists? So I think uh, right off the bat, I think two great people to answer that would be uh, Lee and uh, Greg. So Lee, if you want to go first, go for it. Uh, can you restate that question again? Yeah, general, generic kind of question. Any tips for product people who work closely with data scientists? Like, I, I, I don't know what kind of tips you're looking for in particular. But if you tips? Have any tips? Yeah. Well, probably, probably the biggest tip that I have this week is uh, humility. <laughs> don't be afraid to tell, tell people what you don't know and what you're interested in and passionate. It's like Mark was doing, exploring stuff like that. Don't be afraid. Uh, just... Uh, have some empathy because somebody sitting on the other side of the table, if they proverbially put their pants on one leg at a time, hopefully, uh, but, or they jump straight into them like firemen. But uh, what I'm saying is my, my thing this week that I've, I've come against is, uh, is just people, people first, you know, this, this is a, a complicated enough. Let's, let's not bring in all the other emotions in there, but, uh, um, yeah. And, uh, also just network, you know, that, that's, that's the really the part of it too. You can't just walk up to somebody and, and ask them a technical question because they're, they're either one, they, they don't know you or, or two, they probably don't have that skill set yet. So yeah, I just say people are people, people first. Hey, Harpreet, do you mind if I follow up on that real quick? Yes, please. I, I just wanted to also emphasize, I came over here, I'm like cleaning dishes at the moment, but I, I wanted to come over here and just say, I, I couldn't agree more that networking is super key to being able to find or get into the role that you desire. Um, and whether that's like a local, you know, programming meetup or like literally volunteering, like doing something where you're actually having face-to-face -face time with other individuals is massive in terms of the opportunities that's going to, you know, bring to you. Yeah. Like this happy hour, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, Thank you very much, Javier. Uh, let's go to Greg on this one. If anybody else wants to, uh, to provide tips for uh, product people who work with data scientists, um, definitely let me know, but Greg, go for it. Yeah. Um, I think, it's a it's it's a nice relationship and I, and I really like that. So, um, product folks have an interest uh, uh, to work with data science folks simply because uh, data science folks are here to answer the hard questions or questions or not um, that cannot be answered with a simple query. Uh, and uh, if uh, you're a product manager you want to increase the usage of your product, you want to increase retention, you want to enhance um, user experience, uh, you want to add a new feature, um, and uh, you want to test whether a feature will reduce uh, conversion for your customers or conversion rates. Uh, this is the right team that you want to partner with to answer these questions, to, uh, uh, schedule or, or uh, design experiments that you can test on your product. And this is the team that can help you answer questions that are hard for you to answer 
um, when you are seeing your metrics go in the wrong direction. And with that, to Lee's point, it's it comes down to networking and, and making sure that both groups understand why this product exists in the first place. What is this product addressing in terms of pain point and making sure that together they work towards making sure that this product is optimized and that the roadmap is filled with features that will continue, uh, that they will continuously uh, enhance it and grow its user base. Thank you very much, Greg. Um, so excellent tips there. I hope you got some value out of that. If you decided to stick around, Shashir, uh, a great question. Thank you. Let's continue and move on here. There's a question coming in from uh, Lavina on LinkedIn. Uh, I thought it was interesting. I've never heard of these, but what to expect in data science system interviews? Um, but yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure. I don't know if I've ever been in a data science system interview. Um, has anyone, but Makika, go for it. Hey, so yeah, I did. I did like six in a week. Oh man, it was brutal. Um, yeah, and it's, to be honest, um, okay, so in general, when we say system interviews, if you think engineering system interviews, you'd be about right. Um, that's sort of like where that aspect came up from. Um, to, and there's a, a bunch of different resources that are really kind of nice. Um, if you look at, for example, educative.io, they have like a ML engineer track or something that is specifically like preparing for ML system design interviews. Um, so it can come in two forms. Uh, one could be like a case study. So for example, they give you some parameters, um, like for example, Levi's, you know, uh, when I interviewed for them, um, they're like, we want to, here's these like specs, you know, we need uh, these recommendations. So first of all, we need to provide recommendations for computer vision or whatever, right? Um, then we also need the, uh, we need the inference to be real time and then some other stuff, right? So they give you all these parameters, like on the speed of the data, the availability of the predictions, um, how would you monitor it, all that other stuff. Um, and then essentially they're like, create a system architecture based off of it. So essentially that's what I did was I create a system architecture based off their parameters, like a workbook explaining these are my decisions. So that's kind of like the take home slash in-person one that they could kind of do. Um, the like typical sort of engineering one is kind of similar, which is they'll say something like design uh, the Twitter feed rank or uh, design um, a, a clothing recommender or uh, design um, a fraud detector. And they'll sort of kind of depend on you to first off, ask really great questions back. Um, like, okay, well, you know, does the prediction need to be real time? Do we have access to batch data? You know, do I need to design the data warehouse? Like, da, 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 da. And then you'll essentially kind of build up the architecture and the components as you're sort of like live stream asking them questions. Um, to be honest, like system interviews, I found, first off, I love them. They are so fun. And they are also terribly hard in a lot of different ways. Because like with data structures and algorithms questions, um, a lot of times you can kind of generalize it down to like, oh, this is like a by binary search problem. Oh, this is like a tree-based approach or whatever, right? You can kind of get it down to there is like an optimal solution. With system interviews, it tends to be a lot harder because a, really a lot of the choices are very subjective. So when you see people saying this is the ideal data science or ML stat, first off, they're bullshitting you. Sorry, pardon my French, but they are. 
um, because they're even still within the community, like we don't have agreement on that. Do we do we do, we do event based messaging or whatever? Right. So that's just the you know, system interview part. Um, what I would say, though, if they're asking you to do that as a data scientist, I'd be a little bit concerned. So I would get a lot of clarity into like what they're expecting. And you can ask those questions, by the way. You can say like, well, what is it going to look like? Is it going to be like a whiteboard? Is it what would be the output? Um, you know, what's the best way to prepare? You can ask that from your recruiter. Um, but if they're asking you that, I would be a little bit concerned because once again, that's kind of a feature of the engineering sort of function because as an engineer, you would be building up infrastructure or architecture pipelines. Um, so, you know, just a couple bit of thoughts. Um, Educative.io has a really great, they have an ML engine, they have an ML based system design resource. They also have a regular engineering system design based resource. And there's like a bunch of links. Uh, for example, the head of data science for Twitter wrote one or whatever. If you if you look up case study, um, the best way to prepare honestly is to uh, understand like what people are mostly doing. Like what are the big names? Uber, Twitter, Yelp, all those guys. Read case studies and just try to like understand the decisions that people have made. And even like try to mock design, like what would be like your perfect ML solution. Um, hint, look at Full Stack Deep Learning. It's a free course that has videos online where they specifically go through what a nice little stack looks like. So yeah, sorry, that was a lot. I love system design interviews. Oh, I did great. like six of them in a week. <laughs> uh, thank you very much, Makigo. That's a, a lot of great information there. Um, I think maybe if you want to hop on to this next question coming up, uh, it has to do with design thinking, design thinking and data science. So if anybody uh, has any thoughts on the intersection of that, let me know. I'll bring you up uh, to the chat. But can talk about Zedrun now, and I'm like, damn, this thing looks super interesting. <laughs> A new way. Sorry, I went down like the most absurd rabbit hole over the last couple of weeks on this. How did you? Um, and I was here? wondering if, if other data people were, were involved yet. Um, so I for those of you who be. don't know, Zedrun is like owning online horse races that are NFT horses that are NFTs and you can enter them in races. And they've essentially encoded all of uh, most of the attributes of what actual real racehorses have, like bloodline, individual characteristics, all these things. And there's a marketplace where you're buying and selling these. So there's a huge data application in pricing them. There's also evaluation on the types of races they excel at and these types of things. And they're slowly adding in additional uh, parameters that, that impact the success of the horse. You can also breed the horses and go down all these different rabbit holes. And there's like optimal strategies for making money or winning races or whatever it might be. Um, I'm not an expert. I only own a couple of horses, but oh, holy cow, there's so much. And for data people, it's like, maybe I'm always trying to look at the next big, stupid data problem oh, to solve. This is, uh, <laughs> I got to I gotta talk to you about this because this seems. Hey, let's make it stable. You super, know? Yeah, dude, like, I'm down. Let's, uh, let's chat offline about this. 100% interested in this. Um, damn. Uh, yeah, it's really cool. Blockchain technology too, huh? Wow. Now, now you're really catching all the buzzwords. Well, well right. so the, the big thing for me, uh, this is my last thing, yeah. is that uh, like, I think it's been really difficult to understand conceptually how NFTs can be leveraged effectively. Right. The, the technology is there, but like, what are the ideal use cases? Um, what are the practical use cases? And there are some, don't get me wrong, but like the, the overarching theme is that this is a great technology. How do we use it? To me, this is a really interesting, like practical use case that's gamified that people create value or find value in. Thank you very much, Ken. Let's go to the uh, last question for today. Then we'll wrap it up. Um, question here from LinkedIn, Dwayne. Whitfield, what have you seen with design thinking and data science? I think that's an interesting question. 
um, design thinking, data science. Ben, what about you? What have you seen with this? And then I think Javier says he's got some stuff here as well. So we'll go to. Can someone define the term design thinking? I'm not, I'm sure I use it. I just don't, I'm not familiar. Yeah. That, um, that's as, as funny as this might sound, I actually taught a university class on this with Ooh. a design thinker. So it's coined in IDEO. And so the, it's, it's the idea of human centered design. So we're looking at the end users. We're very focused on their interactions and studying them and then kind of boiling that in and baking that into the process of whatever we're building. It could be a model. It could be some technology product. It could be a like shopping market type of thing. But that term was coined specifically at IDEO. Okay. I think uh, my only reaction is sometimes I don't trust the user. So get, getting user feedback, sometimes that can mislead. So I, I get really excited to figure out the behavior. What is the behavior that you could measure rather than opinions? Like, hey, do you like my demo? Yay, we like the demo. Like, does that actually mean anything? Can um, The other criticism is I'm sensitive to recipe playback. And what I mean by that is if I walk you through a demo on a product and I show you an example problem, I actually have no faith that you can solve a new problem. And so this is one of the things you run into, like some of the cloud certification programs. Like, do I really think you can solve a new problem? Um, and that's why it's nice to give people the challenge to go do a new problem, right? So those are two things I think about from yeah, mistakes from the past. Can uh, go for it. And then after can I want to hear from uh, Mark, because Mark says that, it has uh, changed the way he thinks. Go for yeah, it, ben. Uh, ben, I think you highlighted probably one of the biggest shortcomings of traditional design, um, and also like technically one of the the shortcomings of data science as well. Uh, and so, like the problem with traditional design is we're not looking at at the data as as effectively enough, and we're not highlighting unarticulated needs. Right. That's exactly what you were saying. Is the um, you know like customers don't know better. They don't know what they want. They show us what they want by their actions. And a lot of the time, I don't think that that's integrated as well as it could be with the design process. And then from the data science uh, side, I think a lot of the time we forget sometimes that there is an end user. We get so wrapped up in, in the algorithm or what we're doing uh, that it really pays to have kind of both of those uh, areas covered. And, and I honestly do see a future where there are a lot of data science, science teams that do have a designer associated with them. Uh, for part of the process, for what the end end users are seeing, for, for UI, UX, whatever it might be. Um, I think it's a, a really exciting uh, convergence. And if you have skill skill sets across both design and data, that's going to be a pretty powerful place to be in, in the near future. Yeah, my team, when I was at Bold, we had a, a designer, UX researcher. And um, one of the books he put me on to was a book, uh, O'Reilly book called Designing with Data. So definitely check that out. I'm sure you can find that book um, pretty freely available online if you're enterprising enough. Uh, Mark, go for it. Yep. <clears throat> so I want to get the reason why like design thinking is like kind of like influenced my approach to data science is because the same time I was learning data science, I was at Stanford and Stanford has is obsessed with design thinking. They have a whole school uh, for design thinking there. There's so many classes like design thinking of X, Y, Z. And so everyone takes like, two or three workshops in design thinking. So I was like, it's baked into my education. Um, so that's the way I approach it. And I put in the, the link there, like the five steps of, of design thinking. This is a quick article I found, but the five steps uh, is empathize, define, ideate, prototype, and test. 
And being at a startup, I think the key things that I think about is that I work with really broad, abstract ideas and like, how do you make like a first version of something? And so that empathize step, if you notice a lot of the things I, I mentioned in these conversations, I'm always saying, go talk to people, go talk to like a hundred users, go talk to, uh, to people outside the data team, because I'm constantly trying to empathize and like understand my customer. Um, our end user. And so like when I, when I first joined uh, Humu, I, I had my scheduled meetings I set up with me. I was like, all right, that's nice. I'm gonna do that. But also I went to go talk to all the salespeople, all the UX researchers and everyone, because I wanted to understand who um, the people who talk to our customers, what are our customers saying? What are their pain points? And so I think that's the kind of key aspect of it. Um, and then another addition, not gonna go through every single step of that, but the prototyping aspect of it is I create prototypes for my data projects and then share it with the stakeholders to get that, get the idea of what they really want. So what those prototypes look like for me is I'll create fake data table shells where I'll go on Microsoft uh, Paint and create like, what does a, a diagram look like? And then go back to my stakeholder and say like, hey, this is why I think what your request meant from our conversations and what the customer wants does is align with it. And they'll say either two things like, wow, that's great. I love that. Or they're like, actually, when I made that request, now that I see this little picture, that's completely wrong. Here's what you need to do. And there's that iterate phase. And so um, there's more to it, but just to keep it brief, those are kind of two key aspects I like always dive back into. And I think that really stems from this learning data science and the stuff being rooted in design thinking at Stanford. Yeah, I'm definitely going to check out that link that you'd sent. Um, the five steps of design thinking. It's also shared right there on LinkedIn for you guys that don't want it. Mikiko, go for it. Yeah. So there's actually a community out in the Bay Area called like MLUX. And the funny thing was that like design thinking was way big at Autodesk to the point that they bought the rights to host workshops and give people certificates and all that to do it in the company. So I have like nightmares. Um, but it, But it's, you know, the funny part is that I think so I feel like, and this could be, I'm sure this is totally wrong. I feel like where the discussion about even like fairness and ethics and bias and AI first came out, when I started hearing it was among all my MLUX peeps. Like it wasn't coming from anyone else. Like it was coming from that group because I think very early on, like some of them, um, especially some of the, the ones that I know who eventually went on to do MLUX and like ethics and bias at like Amazon, Google, like they recognized that like, well, they're, so they were, they tend to be more data-driven people in general. Um, but what they're doing was that they were looking at the data and they were saying like, how are people actually like using the ML products that we're creating? And they're going, oh my God, they're abusing the shit out of it. And so I feel like that's where a lot of that initial conversation came from. Um, the group is still around. And I think they're probably just like, you know, going gangbusters with all the online stuff. Um, but it's interesting because like, I think there's still this like discussion about how do you make that that's somewhat related to MLUX, but not really. There's still that discussion of like, how do you make machine learning and data science like valuable and useful, right? And to some extent, for it to be valuable and useful, people have to be using it. Um, so do we sort of create sort of ML-based products before people even know it? Or do we like sort of do it iteratively? But if we do it iteratively, are we sometimes just literally doing the NFT-powered courses, as Eric Sims put it in the chat, which is great? Um you know, so I, I think if people are interested, like they should definitely check out like the ML UX, like Google that term together, four letters, and they'll probably find a lot there. Um, but I do think that like with like the whole fairness and AI coming up, like we're, we're kind of in for a reckoning um, to some degree. I, we're all ready in like the throes of a reckoning because, you know, you can't have people creating like machine learning products where it's like, oh, we're going to kind of like nerf people or like out them in real life um, and things like that, you know, without it, like you put all this like massive power in the hands of the people, you would reasonably hope that people will use it well um, and they don't. So, you know, we're, yeah, it's, 
it's only the beginning. It's only the beginning, especially for federated learning. So very much. But Kiko, uh, Ken also has a, a podcast episode number 46. I put the link right there in LinkedIn as well. Uh, definitely check that out. Uh, let's uh, let's go to Javier for uh, for this next comment here. But then I also want to come back to this this concept, the AI reckoning. And I want to hear from Ben on this. But what are your thoughts on the, the I was just going to add to a lot of the comments others have said about the intersection of design thinking with data science. And I think one of the biggest areas where data scientists might, you know, actually like benefit from incorporating a more formal design thinking process is probably at the onset of an engagement or an analysis where you really want to be objective about the process and the flow, and you don't want to jump to a solution at the beginning. Like it, it, you know, similar to product design and kind of the voice of the customer, um, which Ben commented on earlier, but you want to try and really design something that, uh, you know, takes your own bias away, I guess. Like, yeah. Thank you very much, Javier. Uh, uh, ben, let's let's hear from you on this uh, this idea, this AI reckoning. I think it's a very fascinating idea. Thank you for bringing it up, Akiko. Sure. Uh, before, before we jump to that, I think this conversation is triggering me a little bit, um, but it's triggering me for a funny reason. If you, when you go to a startup, it ruins you. It ruins you for life. And the way, the reason it ruins you is, um, and hopefully I'll, you know, I'm saying this with much love and it's just kind of the reality of the market is every payroll's not free. You need a multiplier on how much you're getting paid. And if that's not there, then you need to be fired like as soon as possible, unless it's like long-term R&D, right? And so when, when we talk about like products and different things like that and features and what are you going to build and how are you going to build it? The the beautiful thing about building a product with the market is the market wants to eat you. Like the market just wants to eat you and spit you out and it doesn't care what's going on in your personal life. Where sometimes being an employee, you have these nice shelters like, hey, I'm sick or I'm sad. I need to take time off. I've got things going on. Like we've all worked with good bosses that allow you to do that with, but with the startup that is actually not possible. So with the reckoning, uh, Mikiko, if you can, if you can kind of um, just expand that a little bit more and then we can get into this discussion. Is it specific around AI ethics? Like what, what is the, where's AI yeah, ethics going? Which, okay. Yeah. It, well, it's where, it's where's AI ethics going. And I think it goes along with the like businesses want to, and I am fully behind the capitalist. Yay, go us. Um, capitalism. Um, businesses want to make okay. Uh, <laughs> organizations want to make revenue. Businesses want to make value um, or profit, right? So I totally get that. Um, and I get that sometimes, like you're you're just gonna have some misses, right? And if you take high high risk, high reward, right? If you want to get stuff that's really unique out there, sometimes you gotta take a risk. But I do think that uh, there's just like around the democratization of ML and data science, right? Like we're kind of expecting people, we build these tools that the lay person can use and we're kind of expecting them to not do bad shit with it, you know? Yeah. So, and I kind of wonder, is that really a reasonable expectation? And I, I feel like the ML UX, ML UX communities were the first ones to bring this up um, in some ways because they looked at how are people using things versus how are we designing it? But, you know, so it's, it's squarely that AI ethics and fairness as we get sort of more democratization in our tools. Would we not expect to see like more bad shit happening? Yeah, no, that that's a great that's a great question. So I think with AI ethics, most of the time when we talk about AI ethics, it's we're all trying to prevent the oops. Like we're we don't want to have us, you know, we want don't want to be in the Wall Street Journal. We don't want to have bad press. We don't want to have racist, sexist, ageist models. We don't want this to happen. But you're actually bringing up something else where it's actually malicious intent, which is definitely something that happens on a regular basis with hackers and people using other tools. And I think um, 
what was that? Uh, there was that GitHub that was actually deleted because it was AI that was putting your, it was using like deep fake technology to put um, faces onto porn scenes. Do you guys remember that? Where GitHub actually like, so that was an example of like AI technology that was awful. So how upset would you be if you found out that someone is doing that to a member of your family or, you know, just anyone in the world? That's, that's terrible. And so I think you're going to have more and more examples, but hopefully you'll have technologies, um, to kind of counteract that. I, so you have the malicious thing. The other, the other thought with AI ethics is AI ethics is incredibly complicated. So here's an example to just start a, a discussion. So uh, AI surveillance, you know, I'm going to look at your face if you try to steal my car or break in at night. Should I be allowed to go to the local police station and look you up? So in the state of California, we'd say absolutely not. But what if my kids were kidnapped? So I've got young kids. If I find out that my kid has been kidnapped, but I have your face on my camera, should I be allowed to go to the local police station, look you up? And this is complicated. Like for people on this call that are parents, you'd say, no, this isn't complicated. This is easy. It's actually still complicated because you have to prepare for the future. You, you can't plan ethics for the political system we have today. You have to plan for a political system we could have in, a f- in the future. And with great, you know, AI is the amplifier, right? So I, I love that point you're bringing up that a lot of times with AI ethics, we're trying to be really woke. We're trying to talk about like what, where it could go wrong, but there are people out there that will use these tools to do harm. So I, I'm curious what people think about the, the AI surveillance state. If your kid is kidnapped, do you want to go to your local police station and have AI look that person up immediately? Absolutely, man. <laughs> so it, it is. And yes. it's kind of up to ethics. It's not a global standard. Yeah. So you have different regions, different states, different political systems that want to live a certain way. So for me personally, I would love to have network. Um, I'd love to have neighborhood security. So if you drive your car into my neighborhood, I want your license plate scanned immediately. I want it compared against people that live there. And I want you to be looked up if you know you are going to be suspect, top five suspect list if something happened that night and we want to go find you. There are neighborhoods where people say, I don't want to live in that neighborhood, but I, I do want to live in that neighborhood. Let's go to uh, Ken and then Mark. Yeah. I think one thing that 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 does concern me is that the pace that regulation moves on any of these things is so much slower than the pace that the technology moves. And what's always going to be this like it's not even a cat and mouse game because the technology is so much further ahead than how fast than we can regulate it. So that's one challenge. You also uh, highlighted the the like the the cultural difference. So I'm I'm sure many of you have probably read the book AI Superpowers, and to me that's very terrifying that. Other countries, the way they view uh, machine learning, the way I use, they view AI, it essentially has set up their system so that they can leverage it more effectively than than the U.S. can in the future. Because culturally, they're they're okay with their identities or whatever it might be being part of the the broader political system. And so I'm not, I don't think that any countries are are going to you know take over the U.S. using AI. But it does make this very weird, uneven playing field across the entire world based on how different countries regulate their their AI. Some countries are very pro data and like not pro individualism. And in a weird way, that really does breed AI innovation because there's access to so much more data. Uh, there's access to so much uh, more of this, um, you know, so many more opportunities to, to do bad stuff, but to also uh, to just innovate. And I think that's in my mind where reckoning comes is um, when we're all moving at different speeds, what happens? when one country or one group is significantly further uh, ahead than other groups and what are the negative repercussions of that? Because without a doubt, I think really advanced technology in general, uh, depending on what it is, can breed uh, huge amounts of inequality. Um, and I don't think AI in that sense, uh, in, the sh- in like a medium term is different, maybe super long term, 
it starts to bridge that gap again, but it goes sort of like in my mind. So kind of two cents, maybe I went a little off topic. Mark, go for it. Yeah, I mean, this this is the exact reason why I got into data science because I saw the writing on the wall. I was like, wow, data scaling up kind of all these amazing innovations. But then the question came to my mind that I always ask is like, for who? Who is this actually going to impact? Um, who is this going to help? And, and who is it potentially going to Im- uh, impact negatively? Who's going to help, but like at the cost of others, right? And so um, just to kind of, not to call, call you out specifically, but like this idea of like an AI powered, like monitor neighborhood, like you said, some people really like that. For me, that sounds terrifying. Um, and the reason being is like, I, I would actually love that if I felt confident that data sets weren't biased. <laughs> and so for me, I'm like, all right, uh, if I go into a neighborhood like that, like, am I going to be mixed up because they just didn't have enough like light-skinned black people in the data set? And now the one person who looked like that who stole a car now looked like that as well. That's something that I'm I'm concerned about. But I think there's a lot of opportunity. So that shouldn't discount pursuing that. But I think there needs to be so much more work of like, what are the externalities of what we're doing? And how can we account? Do we need to collect data? Do we need to... Um, you know, maybe add some modifiers to to the bias. I know we talked about this a few weeks ago. And for me, especially like in healthcare, you know, a lot of the problems with clinical trials is that people of color, um, gender, or wherever it may be, like do not enter into those trials and therefore do not inform the like the general public of like how these medicines impact people. I think a great example is like there's many medicines out there where it's just only uh, studied on men. And when it reaches women, it like completely messes them up. <laughs> And it's terrifying, right? And so I can see the same thing happening with AI. And that's why I, I got into data science because I was like, I, I don't know. I haven't figured it out. No one's really figured this out really, but I want to be at the table to at least try. Uh, maybe to jump in on that point, Mark, real quick. So um, one of the things that I'm proud of, I wasn't involved with this work, but it, uh, at Data Robot during the COVID vaccine trials, we actually ran into an issue where there, were, there weren't enough minorities that were being pulled in. And so at Data Robot, we were predicting where some of the vaccine trials should be, and we actually helped address that issue. Like we raised, we raised that issue, we helped address it. Uh, addressing some of these issues is, um, I've made people upset because I've said it's, what have I said? I said it's easier to fix bias than it is to build a rocket or something like that. And people get really angry. And, and I want to make a, a clear point. If it comes to a specific use case like resume prediction, if there's bias, let's say the training set is sexist. We have unconscious bias. That is a guarantee. You will always have biased data. I can actually build two models. I can build a model to predict performance. I can build a model to predict gender. And if you build a model to predict what you're the most worried about predicting, you can actually find the feature overlap and figure out what features need to go away. So if I had name or sorority, fraternity, college, hometown, all those features get nuked and they don't need a human to go find them. And so I I would say that we've actually have made a lot of progress um, where you can proactively block bias transfer. But the problem with that is there's always another bias. So we have the top biases that we think about, but there are so many biases. Like the, the one of the most upsetting ones is attractiveness. But we don't really talk about it because like, oh, that's really disgusting that that would even be an issue. But it is an issue for women and for men in the selection process or like your height or things like that. So like humans are silly. Hopefully we can tackle the big ones. Um, Racism, sexism, ageism. But there's always another bias that we're not predicting. Real quick, I actually would love to. I'll go first, Mark, real quick. It takes courage to speak out that honestly, Ben. And I totally agree with you. 
But even if you thought of all possible biases, there's just a big mathematical problem. We don't have the time and resources to collect the entire population. So sampling creates bias automatically. It's just a mathematical reality also. Sorry, Mark. Oh, no worries. I, I agree with that statement. Also, like, I, th- I actually love your point of saying like solving for bias is easier than building a rocket. I actually agree with it because I think like the solutions are there. There's a lot of amazing researchers, especially like sociology and whatnot, like highlight this is the problem. This is what you do to like to stop it. The solution's easy. What's hard is implementing and actually getting people to want to implement those solutions. Uh, and I think you really highlighted like the, the, the height or appearance, like we know that's really impactful, but like to get people to want to do that, that's a different uh, hill to climb. Yeah. I, I also have kind of an ax here because I've gotten in some pretty visible fights online with like a, um, I won't mention the college, but there's a professor. He was tweeting like five years ago at higher view saying like, we were building racist models and he was tweeting us white papers saying like, you guys need to read these white papers. And we went and read the white papers and they were embarrassing. They were like, are you serious? Like the, the amount of research that we were doing to address this bias issue and this individual, he would, he would go and give pre- these presentations and you'd kind of say like, I don't know if bias will ever be fixed. Like he makes it sound like this impossible problems. Like, Hey, when you look at racism in the U S you know, there are top uh, minorities that we can address right away. Like for some of the long tail, like maybe like Pacific Islanders or something you might run into, you just don't have enough data, but you have some classes like we can fix this tomorrow. We can fix this right away. We just have to get people bought in. And so this mindset of like, I don't know if we'll ever fix it. I, that just bugs me. I'm like, hey, let's make progress. You know, it's all it's all about progress, right? Like, let's make progress and let's celebrate the progress we're making, but also admit that we have room to go. Let's not have these like philosophical ideation pontifications on spinning in, in place. And that's what I felt like this professor was doing. It, yeah, I, I need to get I've over had, it. I need to I've not be had, pissed at this guy. Yeah. I've even had friends who are panelists on a show get visibly upset because I pointed out uh, problems with data cleanliness would hold us back in the data age. And all I had to say was very patiently and politely, hey, friend, COVID collection, what do you think? Oh, yeah, I get your point. And it's, I think what's going to hold us back in this data age, not in the engineering sciences or, or the science sciences as much as the other realms where data literacy is so lacking and there's motivations to uh, falsify data or not collect it completely or whatever. And as we get over those humps, that's when we'll see real tractional improvements in, in many areas. But it's really data literacy holding us back more than anything and data governance. George, hope you might be listening. So I think what, go ahead, Mickey, go. No, 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 continue. I was going to say, like, it's funny, like, even with my family, I, that data literacy thing, it literally, literary, data literacy thing really sticks out because when I was working in, like, growth marketing, growth analytics, right, and my parents were like, look at all the shit that Facebook does, look at all the data they buy and all the personalization. I'm like, Dad, do you know how you're getting those credit card offers, like, in the mail? He's like, oh, I thought someone picks me. I'm like, no, 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 sweetheart. No, they, they don't, they don't pick you. 
you know, they get some information and then they, you know, and, and they see they they know you're a schmuck that's going to like go for the credit card debt. Um, you know, and they had a hard time understanding that. And especially feel like with the Senate hearings, right, with Facebook, some of those questions were just straight up embarrassing. They really were. And it wasn't about machine learning or data science. It was like, do you know what encryption means? Do you do you know what end to end encryption means? Like, do you, do you understand? Or even, for example, like a lot of people are concerned about jobs, right? Which is if we, you know, if we open up immigration, suddenly the American labor force is just going to get flooded. I'm like, well, okay, so hold up. First off, a lot of startups in the Bay Area already use offshore knowledge workers. So, you know, there's, there is already still a connection, um, you know, but it's, it's a little bit weird. It's like, sometimes like I'll get links from my parents who are like, what about this? And I'm like, Ooh, mm, yeah, see, we, we did that at my last job and I got paid to do that. Not necessarily to, you know, create discriminative models, but that's something that I kind of, it's something that I just like in some degree about this idea about how all our data scientists or engineers have to be super technical. It's like, well, but some of these issues that they run into sometimes are just, you literally didn't ask, for example, um, if we're doing a model on mortgage predictions, are there characteristics besides race that could predict race? Could you not have talked to your sociology colleague? Could you not have done the literature on the research, you know, about what predictors, for example, will predict race and neighborhood and lead to redlining predictions? So I know that's my, that's my hot takes, but Ken, sorry, I interrupted you. No, no, you're fine. I, I think that that, in a sense, also adds a little bit to, to where my head was going. Not a super complete thought, but I also think, to piss off Ben, like, inevitably, everything is going to be a little bit biased, right? But we can, we can uh, minimize the bias by asking the proper question at hand, right? A lot of the time, we're so focused on the data, we're not as... Uh, we're not as like susceptible to eval changing our evaluation criteria or what our or or what our dependent variable is, and that is so much like like something is only biased if what it's predicting um, has like some relationship to that bias, and so I think asking better questions and framing the problems better and thinking through that that pipeline is something that helps us to even use biased data, what what some would consider biased. Um, to, to effectively leverage insight. And, you know, like the most famous thing is like all models are wrong, some are useful. And I think that that definitely applies here is that like essentially all data is biased, but it doesn't mean some of the models can still be useful if we have clearly identified the use case that won't be harmful to or that minimizes harm to other people. Isn't that uh, at the end of the day, doesn't it summarize to exactly what I've been saying in the chat room here, which is setting up mechanisms to audit your own data and also leveraging technology to monitor and take action, right? At the end of the day, you have to have that will, the will to take action, knowing when things are wrong. And this is what I'm thinking, you know, maybe the, the effort weighs the benefits and people don't want to do it or they pay the price when it's too late. That's what's happening out there in the world because we have the technology, right, to monitor. So what's stopping us from monitoring for bias or bad behavior, red line inferences, as Mikiko mentioned. Uh, so I'm wondering if that was happening. That's a great point. And just real quick, uh, we're beginning to wrap it down, wrap it up here. I mean, that's a great question. Uh, if anybody has any insight on that, definitely let me know. But I, I will say that uh, I was listening to a podcast earlier this week, the Increments podcast, and the title of this episode was The Hubris of Computer Scientists, where they uh, heavily discussed this particular white paper, Good Isn't Good Enough. And it's all about essentially this professor 
is uh, throwing shade at machine learning practitioners because we don't have a universally agreed upon notion of good. Uh, more particularly, it doesn't match his unified uh, or dis description of what good is. Um, definitely check this paper out. It's freely available. You can find it online and it's a short read. Uh, definitely check that out. Also, the NFT from today. Um, Mark, if you uh, if you want this, let me know. If you don't mind me sharing it, let me know. Uh, like uh, our pre, maybe to kind of lean into that even more. I'd say yeah. the data science default is not good. It's actually evil, and by that I mean it's we're alpha chasers. So an example, if I'm always being an alpha chaser at higher view, the data sets were so big, we had people that would interview across multiple um, companies. And so being an alpha chaser, if I know that you screwed up your interview at this bank, shouldn't I use that for predictions for future interviews for future banks? Like obviously we didn't do that, but that's an example. If you're an alpha chaser. What a what an evil thing to do. Like, do you want to live in a reality that you're nervous? You're going into your interview, you got divorced, something happened, you didn't sleep last night, you're a junior talent, you screw it up, and you screwed up interviews for life. Like, so we did not do that, but the alpha chaser mindset would always grasp at that. So the default is evil. And, and Ken was making a, 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 a um, something about that, right? You mentioned AI superpowers, Ken. And at the end of the day, it comes down to the culture of the country because there may be some cultural landscape that may accept something like that. Like when you explore something like Japan, they are China. They accept that their data is governed by the government. They trust that, or they accept it, or they preliminary accept it. So there may be some extreme consequences, or not consequence, or situations where uh, 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 people accept as a whole to be uh, governed as is, or be being rated as is. And when you bring that system to the United States, people would cry foul because they, they have a different system and different culture. So I think when it comes to ethics with AI, it really will depend on, on the government, right? So who do you value more in your, inside of your culture? Do you value a dog more than saving a person's life if you're governing a fleet of automated vehicles and things like that? So quite interesting. Epic, awesome discussions. Uh, this is all great. Um, I mean, uh, do like a full on panel discussion about this. I'd love to, love to hear more of you guys' uh, thoughts on this. Let's go ahead and wrap it down, um, wrap it up here. Uh, first time I'm taking care of the baby all by myself this weekend, so it's a huge, uh, huge moment. I got to go pick him up from his uh, grandparents' house. Wife is out there. Uh, she's probably watching and enjoying herself in uh, Kelowna with some friends. She deserves it. She's working extremely hard for the last 15 months straight. Uh, meanwhile, I'm going to go take my baby and go for a beer at a brewery and uh, hang out. It'll be fun. Uh, guys, thank you so much for tuning in. Make sure you, uh, hopefully you guys get a chance to uh, run the repeat of the DSCO virtual conference from last week. Uh, great panel discussion with Ken, uh, myself, Danny Ma. Uh, I forgot who else was on the panel. I forgot their names. Um, but there, it was awesome discussion. So check that out. And then also just in general, the entire event was great. Ben had a great uh, presentation. So did Tom with the opening keynote. So go check that out. You guys, take care. Have a good rest of the weekend. I'll see you next week. And also, uh, you know, next week will be my last day at Price. It's crazy before I uh, chill out for a while and, and start my new role at a Comet. Uh, so I'm excited to uh, to embark on that adventure. Guys, take care. Have a good rest of the afternoon. Remember, you've got one life on this planet. Why not try to do something big? Cheers, everyone. Cheers.